Um, good to be with you guys. I, um, uh, some of you I've spent some time with at these desserts, and um, it has been, I, I, I don't know how to say anything except uh, thank you. It, it, the, um, I'm overwhelmed by the graciousness of, of you guys. Um, I have been at these two desserts, and um, I feel like um, in so many ways um, I've been hosted in everybody's home. And I was only hosted in two homes, but I feel like there was a sense of um, sort of an embracing. Uh, There's people who were, or I was being prayed for. I mean, I, what I expected was probably something that was sort of positive. I expect a little bit of sort of the panel feel of, you know, sort of answer 100 questions on the Bible that I can't answer and not know, you know. And, and what I got was um, a real tenderness and a love from you. Um, I got a great sense about how much the people in this room care about the people in this room and how much the people in this room care about the community in which they live. And so I, I got a sense that this is a church that is passionate about seeing the world changed, about passionate about seeing their, the community changed, and that you really care about your own church community. And so I was honored. I, um, I, I was, it was very emotional. If you haven't been, you know, Monday's the last one, but um, I, I'm just exhausted with the emotion that I, it's just been so great. So I, it's, in every way, it's been unbelievable. So thank you guys for hosting me. Um, we are in a series, as Kim said, called Fearless Generosity. And um, one of the things, we, we talk about generosity, generally the sense is when people hear the term generosity, it's like, oh man. This is, if you grew up in a, in a real traditional church, it's like they typically call that stewardship weekend or something like that or whatever it is. But this is way bigger than, we're not talking about money. People might, you might be thinking, well, it's the generosity series. It'd probably take a break from church for a little while. I got things, I got lawns to mow and I got really important things. I got, I got a world crisis to solve, but I just don't think I'm going to make it to the generosity series. But what we've been saying is that while the Bible is, when it talks about generosity, is at least about money, it is so much more than that when we talk about being generous people. If you were here with us last week, we talked about the idea of donating our entire selves to God. That money is just the tip of the iceberg. That really what God's calling us to do is something far bigger and far more courageous than that. And what we've been saying, too, is that someone who is fearlessly generous is a person who is dedicated to a life of embracing God's abundance in a world that is totally preoccupied with scarcity, with the sense that there isn't enough and there's never going to be enough, so I have to hold on to it tightly. So as we continue on in this series, would you do this with me? Would you pray with me? And then we'll see what God has for us today as we talk about fearless generosity. So let's pray. Father, we know the experience of scarcity. We know the experience of feeling like there isn't enough and there isn't going to be enough. God, all of us have moments where we look at the things that we own, the things that we've, we possess, and we hold them as our own, and we're afraid that there isn't, those things aren't going to last. They might get robbed or taken. From our own emotional standpoint, God, we're afraid that if we, um, there isn't enough of us to go around that people will take from us and that we'll end up being empty. Lord, we worry about the amount of space that we have, if we let other people into it. We have that experience, God, of scarcity. Jesus, would you challenge us today with your abundance? That we would see our own life not merely as things to sort of keep and hoard and hold on to and tightly grip, but that we would see our life as overflowing with your abundance. Jesus, we would give you just a moment now to pause, to sit in silence, and to allow you to speak to us. Well, this might be the only silence we get in our week. Would you speak to us in the quiet, Jesus? So we'll give you this, these next few moments.
Jesus, would you speak to us about your love that is abundant, that overflows? God, would that be the story that we write in this community for our community? God, would people be shocked and amazed by what you're doing in our lives and in our midst? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. And we're going to be most of the time that we spend our time in Luke chapter 17. If you brought a Bible, great. Maybe you saw the slide earlier. It said, you know, there's a couple of different Bible apps. If you got a phone or an iPad or something you want to follow along. Or if you want a Bible, maybe you didn't see the sign when you came in that just has, you know, you can take a Bible. Um, if you want to, you need one to look at, you got, you got, some people will hand you one, just raise your hand, they'll give you one. It's also on your outline. Everything you need will be on the screen as well. But like I said, we're in Luke 17. While you're turning there, um, I, each morning, well, I say each morning, that's a little bit of exaggeration. Some mornings I get up and I exercise, uh, and I uh, we, we have I have like you know a little station in my in my garage. I pull out our minivan, and um, I turn on the TV, and I, we have we don't have cable in our house. You know we have uh, we have anten- we have literally have antennas on our TVs. And some of you are like, I didn't know that technology still existed. It does. Remember the rabbit ears when you were a little kid? Some of you guys, we got that. So um, I'm, I'm in the garage, I turn on the TV, and I, I like to watch, I don't like to watch generally the local news, I like to watch like the national news or something else. Well, it, on, in the antenna universe where I live, you, uh, there isn't, there isn't a, a national television program that you can watch that has a news um, before 7 o'clock in the morning, which you know, so I have to, I have to watch something else. So I, the, <laughs> the only national news that I get, I don't even get national news, I get global news, and I get that, I get Al Jazeera in English. On PBS, so from 6:30 until seven, I get Al Jazeera, and um, so I'm a very like globally minded person now. I know like I know lots of stuff you don't even know about because I watch Al Jazeera. But um, one of the things that has crossed all of the news because at seven o'clock I'm watching PBS Al Jazeera, it's just hard end, and then they start like some kids program, you know, with puppets and all that kind of stuff. So I just stop right there, and I then I could I find another. I turn to you know. One of the major networks, which we, happens to come over the air, so I can watch CBS or whatever in the morning. But I'm watching uh, Al Jazeera this week, and they have feature story, global news, which I thought only Americans cared about this kind of stuff, is they lead with Oscar Pistorius, you know, the double amputee guy who, you know, now he's been implicated in this murder, and it's like this whole thing. And now there's, then there's another layer to this, which is like the, prosec- the lead prosecutor has also been implicated in a murder. I mean, it's like scandal upon scandal. And it is something that has captured my attention. It has captured the world's attention because everybody can't, can't help but look at a scandal. And it's something that gets in people's way from what they're normally doing. They just have to, it's like, you know, it's the sort of car accident kind of, I have to look at whatever's going on there. I have to see what happened. I have to know what's going on there. And, you know, there, there's all kinds of scandals that are making the news. There's another one, Jesse Jackson Jr., who, you know, got caught taking, you know, three quarters of a million bucks to do whatever he wanted. Among the things he bought was a fur cape, which... Those come in totally handy. So, I mean, there's just scandal upon scandal. Things that, there's just things that grab our attention from our normal way of living. They stop us and they direct us to something else. And it is to say that there is a part of our own life, more often than not, that we find ourselves getting caught up in a kind of scandalous sort of life. In other words, that there are things that come to our way which get in our way. And Jesus has this to say. He says that there's... there's there will always be scandal. There will always be something in your way. And so he kind of gives us a sense of how we actually ought to react to that. It's in Luke 17. If you want to turn your Bible, here's what it says. Luke 17, verse 1. Jesus says to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. 
The word, the, the word stumble is the word scandala. It is the word scandal. It's where we get the word scandal. In other words, when we talk about scandals, they are things that get in the way of people's ordinary way of living. And he says to the disciples here, he says, this kind of stuff's going to happen in your life. Things are going to get in your way. Things aren't going to always be great. Your life won't always be smooth. He doesn't promise to them, now that you follow me, we will just smooth everything out for you. He doesn't say that. In fact, he says, this is going to be part of your experience. Everybody knows that. And then he says the second part, but woe to anyone through whom they come. So stumbles are going to happen. Scandals are going to be part of the way in which we live. But horror or grief is what the word woe looks like. To anybody who would intentionally try to cause people to stumble. This is, in other words, because the world has a suffering of stumbling, of scandalizing kind of stuff, doesn't give us permission to then act that way. And then he gives this picture, which is the most dramatic picture of punishment ever. Luke 17, 2. It'd be better, to them, be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, little ones aren't named. We don't know. We all, we, there's not really a good context for the words little ones here. We know that when it's used elsewhere in the Bible and Jesus is speaking, he's talking literally about little kids. But he also, it also includes people that are marginalized, that are poor, that are weak, all that kind of stuff, that don't have a voice. In essence, what he's saying is, if you've got power, you don't get to steamroll other people because they're little. You don't get to scandalize them. And then he has this, this picture of a millstone. When you would um, when you come into an ancient sort of town, uh, there would be a couple of these giant cement circles. And attached to this circle, there'd be a, another wheel on top of it with a donkey attached to it. And people would come in during the day. They'd go out and they'd harvest their grain for that day. They would place the grain into this, into this little millstone area, and then the donkey would walk around crushing the grain. But it was sort of this community piece. And it's a huge cement object. Just to give you a sense of what that looks like, here's a picture of one. So, like, I have no idea who that person is, by the way. I found this picture on the Internet. This isn't like my cousin or something. But there's a person smiling. Now, it's funny, because I don't know if they knew what this, like, if that person knew what this is about. But this is saying, Jesus is saying, if you're someone, leave the picture up there for a little bit. If you cause someone to stumble... I have a new necklace for you to try on while you go swimming. It's that dramatic. Now, this, is, this weighs hundreds of pounds. So the people hearing this would go, oh my gosh, this is, a, this is an incredibly dramatic sort of picture. So woe to you who cause people to stumble, because I would like to invite you to go swimming. Try this on. This is what that's being invited to. So it's an incredibly dramatic picture. Now, the next verse is this. This is kind of critical. The next verse starts with these three words. 17.3. So watch yourselves. Now, in different translations of the Bible, my guess is even in this room, if you were to look it up in different translations, those of you guys who have digital, you know, access to the Bible, you'd see that the word so watch yourselves is sometime attached to verse 2. Like it's still verse 3, but it's, or it's, it's kind of like attached right after the word stumble. In some cases, it's another paragraph. In other words, the question is this. Is the word so watch yourselves about the causing people to stumble, or is so watch yourselves about the very next thing that Jesus says? So is it about the stumbling and the millstone and the little swim apparatus we got there? Or is it about something else, which he's about to say next? So verse 3 continues on. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. So here's, now we've shifted from the offenders to the offended. Now, we don't use the word rebuke a lot. Like, I, I've never heard anybody in normal 
conversation in the, in the course of my life, in all honesty, like with some kind of smoothness, use the word rebuke, you know? Hey, you got my order wrong. I rebuke you, you know, like... That person cut me off. I rebuke you. You know, they just, you don't have that as usual conversation. Real Jesus-y church people might use it every once in a while in particular circumstances, but it's not really a word we use a lot. It, it Generally, if we ever were to use it, it kind of has this sort of sharp criticism kind of connotation there. But what, what's being said here is something a little different. It is to say that there is an inappropriateness. There is something wrong about evil, and it has to be called out. Let's identify that things are not right. Only the idea here is this. That in a rebuke, it has this dual sort of meaning of, the, of honor and the responsibility of blame being held together. And for those of us who like so far, we're like, okay, it sounds like a sharp, a sharp criticism. And we get to like blame. I, I'm locking onto these words and I love this. This enables me to power up. This is like, a lot of us have this impression that rebuking is like, it's like the permission to strike back. Now I get to tell them to their face how I really feel about them. This is great. Well, it's not the way it's intended. Rebuking is about this idea with the intent to restore a broken relationship in truth. The Bible talks off, Jesus speaks often about this thing, uh, the, the dual terms grace and truth. In other words, that we have to be honest about what happened, but we also have to move to restoration by saying, that's not gonna def- I'm not going to let this bitterness, whatever might have caught me, capture me forever. But i got to be honest about what happened with the intent to rebuild, to restore. In fact, the way this sort of, this isn't a new idea. This comes out of Leviticus chapter 19. This is sort of God's commands to the people about how to live with each other. It says this in verse 17, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Let me stop there. Do not hate your fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke them, frankly. In other words, that there, is, there are times, this stumbling sort of encounter with people in our lives, the scandalizing effects of being in relationships from time to time are going to have to cause you to have pain, and I want you to rebuke them, because the answer to hate is rebuke. In other words... To just sort of take things in, to bury them, start keeping score, to stuff them down in, is actually kind of a participation in the offense itself. Look at it again. Do not hate your fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. I'm a person who buries pain. If you wound me, I'm going to store it for later. You know, like if you got, I'm just going to put that in my back pocket. So six months from now when we're having an argument, I can go, remember what happened on February 24th? They don't remember. But I do, and it wounded me, and it's just in your face again. So I share in the good. That's not what's being, what's being talked about here is tell them honestly so that you don't share in the guilt. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge, which is essentially bearing, burying things in your heart. Do not bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And then there's the stamp on the end of it. I am the Lord. This is the same, this is, you know, this is the best thing I think of is like, this is exactly the same thing as like, I'm your father. Why do I have to do it? Because I'm your dad. I have my, my youngest yesterday, we're trying to put him in the car seat. And, um, you know, he's at the age where he can put a seatbelt on, but he just is refusing. Like, he just doesn't like the whole process. He needs a little power to find him. He's our youngest, so he's kind of defining himself amid his two brother, his brother and sister. And so... I go, hey, Scotty, sign up for your seatbelt on. I don't want to. Okay, we're driving, so we need to do that, bud. And sometimes he'll just shorten it if he's really frustrated, just I don't. Hey, buddy, you need to put your seatbelt on. I don't. 
Okay. Um, so whether or not this is a good parenting tactic, I resort to the one, two, three. You know what I'm talking, I'm talking about. I mean, either, either you had this happen to you as a kid, you've done this with your own kids, which is the longest count of three in the world because you really don't want to get there. You have, you know, not only do you have to discipline your kid, you have to get out of the car and everybody else has to wait. It's just big. One. Two. I will say three in a second. You will hear me say it. I will say it. I will use the word three in this house. I mean, whatever it is. And it's, I will, I am one, two, three, thank you so much for putting your seatbelt on. I'm your dad. I mean, it's like, this is, this is kind of the conversation we have every so often with my four-year-old. But ultimately, it's like, hey, you have to wear a seatbelt. I'm your dad in the discussion. Which, you know, I'm not sure that's a wonderful way to parent. It's just the way I have resorted to often, which is the, you don't even want to know what happens when I get to three, because I get there so infrequently, because I'm kind of a wimp. But you get the idea. <laughs> that what's happening here is God's saying, let's not harbor bitterness amongst each other. Let's not share in the guilt of sort of holding grudges. Tell people, hey, this really wounded me. That wasn't okay. I want to let you know that that did not come across well. I'm hurt by that with the intent to restore, not to strike back, but to restore so that, so that we don't share in their offense. So 17.3, watch yourselves, your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. The word repent is a very strange word to us. We know, again, it's one of those churchy words that is like, it's kind of been overutilized perhaps by televangelists. You know, generally it's spoken with a southern accent. You know, it's not really just repent. It's always repent. And they say it on TV and everybody does something. They kind of, yeah, repent, repent. It's a Jesus-y word. We're supposed to raise our hands or yell or something. Repent. So it has this kind of, we don't really know exactly what it means. We just know the people in church say it. It actually just means the word, like a, it's like a U-turn. All it is to say, I was going this direction and I've turned around. So here's the verse. Someone sins against you, brother, sister sins against you. Rebuke them, tell them it's not all right. And if they repent, which, now, let's just stop right there. If they make a U-turn. Now, if you grew up in the church at all, you know that there, there's multiple passages in the Bible that don't have the if clause there that we just talked about. And some of you are like, thank goodness, Luke finally captured what I've been wanting the Bible to say for so long. That I'll forgive anybody so long as they have this repent thing. We could end right now. It's been a great weekend at church. Bring out the band. Because we like the idea of people having to say they're sorry. We like the idea of people going, I was going this way, and I'm turning the other way. That's all I wanted to hear. Only, this is, you know, this idea of forgiveness at this point becomes incredibly sensible. But Jesus, when he's talking about forgiveness, usually it's in a crazy, over-the-top way. And the question we're wondering is, now all of a sudden he seems very sensible. What happened to Jesus? He doesn't seem so crazy anymore. It seems like he kind of makes sense here. I think he's kind of teeing up his audience here for something that he's about to say. Which is to say, you've heard about forgiveness. You know how this works. If they repent, then you forgive them. But Jesus is about a scandalous kind of generosity of fearless forgiveness. And he's setting up his audience who are all going, thank you, Jesus. We understand now. Repent equals forgive. They, you know, they, they wound us. We let them know. They repent. We forgive. We get the formula. This is a great and comfortable formula. This is wonderful for us. Only he's setting something else up here. Look what it says in verse 4. 
even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now the stakes have just been elevated. Here's how. If someone wounds you seven times in a day, like they just, they're just, they punch you in the face and they just, they're that kind of a person. You just, you just chalk that person up to a mean person. But how much worse is it is if after every single time they punch you, so it's like this, hey, how's it going? I am so sorry. Oh, I just, I'm so sorry. Again, I mean, when I punched you in the eye the second time, I was just so grieved by that. And I just, I mean, now imagine this seven times. Someone who beats you up is a mean person, they're a bully, but someone who keeps trying to say, I'm really sorry about that. Well, we have a hard time with that. That's a little bit more difficult for us to swallow. Traditional Jewish understanding, it's the one that all of us kind of liked in the previous verse, which is the one that says, the burden of forgiveness is on the person seeking it. That they would demonstrate in some way or another that they're actually, truly, really, deeply, very sorry. It's like when your own, if you got kids, or you remember this, when your own brothers and sisters, when a kid does something to another, they do something obnoxious or mean or whatever it is to each other, and then you notice it and you go, hey, say you're sorry. And they walk over. Sorry. And then we all say, as parents, or as was said to us by our own parents, is no, 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 no. You have to mean it. <laughs> Sorry. They don't, there's not much difference to them. They, look, they do their best act. Really sorry. They look at you like, is that good enough? No is right. It's not good enough. That's right. So now the, the expectation here is that when people say they're sorry, we need them to feel terrible about it and really show it. Only what Jesus is saying throughout all of his sort of talk on forgiveness, is that the burden isn't on the one seeking forgiveness. The burden is scandalously, scarily on the one who is to be the forgiver. In other words, the people who would follow Jesus have their own hearts so prepared to be forgivers that it is a scandalous, earth-shattering, mind-blowing, stop-everything, this-is-the-kind-of-way-that-we-are kind of thing. What's crazy is he doesn't specify if they really mean it. He doesn't say after three or four times, you can kind of blow them off now. Don't have to forgive them anymore. He says seven times. Now, it could have been a hundred times. could have been a million times. Seven times, if we all imagine the scenario of the punching in the face, that's just enough times to get us to go, that's crazy. That's a crazy amount of things. They say they're sorry seven times. How do I know that they really mean it? This is insane, Jesus. You really want us to do this? And some of us, I can already sense, in your own minds, the wheels are turning like, wait a second, is this just permission for people to abuse us? Is that really, is that what Jesus is saying? I get where that comes from, because some of you have stories where people abused you repeatedly, people who are supposed to love you in so many different forms. Remember how Jesus started this passage. There are things that will cause us to stumble in life. But if you intentionally do this, people, to each other, it'd be better if you weren't around. Here's a new floaty device. Try it in the water. He's pretty serious about people abusing each other. That's why he starts this whole conversation about forgiveness with, let's not, 
Let's not just take advantage of each other because we got power to do it. We're going to be rich in forgiveness. And that richness in forgiveness is also balanced by this idea that we're not just going to use forgiveness as a way to get what we want from other people. Jesus has this, really, this kind of scandalous, earth-shattering kind of forgiveness that he talks about. And the disciples here at verse 5, here's what they say. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. This This is crazy, Jesus. You want us to do this kind of, we don't have what it takes to do that. That's insane. We're going to need a little bit more. Now, notice. Verse 1. This is where I'm asking for some participation. Verse 1. Who is this letter addressed to? Read, you can read it and say it out loud. Not letter, but the conversation. Who? Disciples. Jesus is talking to the disciples. In verse 5, who's Jesus talking to? Great guess. Or also, verse 5, the apostles. Now, a lot of us have the impression that disciples... And apostles are the same thing. Like as if, you know, sometimes people just call me Jeff. Sometimes people call me by my last name. They just call me McGuire. It's like I answer to both. And we gen- if you grew up in the church, you have the sense that like apostles and disciples are like the same thing, just different ways to say the same thing. Only it's not exactly the case. Sometimes they're referring to the same group of people, but they have different emphases. A disciple is someone who's an apprentice, who is learning what it means to follow the master, to become like the master is. That's a, a disciple. But an apostle in Greek, the word apostolos, means one who is sent. A sent one. In other words, the conversation about forgiveness started first with a warning about how we ought to live with Then it goes on to something even a little bit greater. Let's say, you people, my disciples, who are now called apostles, are bearing the weight of a message of forgiveness. And you will be sent into places, and you will model a kind of forgiveness that the world has never seen. Now, the weight being given here to forgiveness is what the apostles, the disciples, feel. So Luke records it as the apostles respond with, well, increase our faith. This is some some incredibly difficult stuff, Jesus. And this is what Jesus says, verse 6. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, some of us have heard the mustard seed analogy. If you've heard Jesus use it a couple times, it's recorded a couple different times in the Gospels. But a mustard seed, as we think about it, is the, the, the notion of it isn't just that it's small, although that's very much a part of what's being talked about here. It's a very small seed. But the other part of it is this. That a mustard seed, mustard isn't a plant you put in your garden. It's not like people were like, well, we have roses and geraniums and mustard. They didn't have that. It's a weed. It's, a, it's an annoying plant. And it has a tendency to take over an entire garden. So here, because a small seed, the, it's, the plant can grow up to like 12, 15 feet high. And it can take over an entire garden. Which means, part of the analogy, part of the usage of the term mustard seed isn't just that it's tiny. It's that when it's planted, it can take over a garden. In other words, that's an incredibly subversive image. So Jesus is saying to these guys, if you had faith like a mustard seed... There'd be a kind of undoing of the normal order of things. There'd be, a, there'd be so powerful that even things that are firmly grounded in the ground, they're placed in the ground, this kind of faith would actually be able to 
uprooted and throw it, and it talks about a mulberry tree, uh, the, or it's also called a sycamore fig. It's the same tree that Zacchaeus, if you guys know Zacchaeus, a wee little man was he, climbed up into a tree so you can see Jesus. That guy, that kind of tree. You grab this giant tree and you can throw it into the sea. These are all things about undoing the way normal people operate. It's a way of subverting the way the normal world operates, and that is a scandalous act. Look at it says in Jeremiah 1.10, Jesus, or I'm sorry, the Lord's speaking to Jeremiah the prophet. And he's telling him what he's going to do. And here's what he says. See today, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. In other words, Jeremiah, you're going to go and speak for me and talk about my stuff to people. And you're going to call them out. And what's actually going to happen is everything that they know to be normal or regular is going to be uprooted or planted differently. You're going to build and do these things. The terminology of uprooting and the mustard seed is about subverting the way the normal world works. And the way in which that's going to happen is through this unbelievable, radical kind of forgiveness. This generosity of self which says, I'm going to be a forgiver. Because forgiveness is participation in a scandalous kind of kingdom activity. Whenever the kingdom is talked about in the Bible, Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, whenever the gospels record it, usually there are three elements. At least one of three. There's usually a kind of, there's usually someone is healed from a disease or a sickness as a marker of God's kingdom. You have people who are freed from some kind of demonic possession, you know, demonization. You have Jesus casting out demons. And the other thing is that he talks about the king. Jesus talks literally about the kingdom of God. In Matthew, it's called the kingdom of heaven, but it's the same idea. Now, I want to jump forward just a little bit to give you a sense of what's happening in this passage. Uh, Let's see, verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when, when he saw them, he said, Go Show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. You have a marker of the kingdom right here. It's being talked about. Jesus has just spent a long time talking about stumbling, you know, and all in the millstone and then the forgiveness and the faith like a mustard seed and all this kind of stuff. And then he has this run in with the lepers. Luke is illustrating something here about the kingdom of God. Skipping down a little further. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus replied, the, ki- the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. So you have Jesus healing ten lepers, and you have him talking about the kingdom, and then he's talking about what it means to be a participant in the kingdom a little further down, verse 33. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Now, the only thing missing is this sort of demonic possession conversation where Jesus casting out demons from people. You don't have that. Instead, you have a conversation about forgiveness. In other words, this idea of this kind of fearless forgiveness, this radical, absurd, scandalous kind of forgiveness, proclaims the kingdom of God in a powerful way. As much as a healing, as much as Jesus talking about it, it's, the sa- it's equated in the same way. So in between all of the conversation about forgiveness and these kingdom kind of things, you have verse 7. Check this out. Suppose one of you has a servant, again, speaking to the apostles, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, 
Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Now, there's no answer given here in the passage. Jesus doesn't answer this question. But the answer is clearly for the disciples. They would know that to be the answer is no. The servant's responsibility, this whole conversation about duty here, which we'll come back to in a second. The servant's responsibility is to serve the master. The word duty itself actually means what I owe. Now why does he talk about duty and responsibility of a slave to a master? When he's talking about all of this kingdom stuff, the forgiveness stuff, and then the healing of the... Why why is this what Jesus said? Because part of what we do, part of what marks people who belong to Jesus is a fearless commitment to forgiveness. It is part of who we are. People would look at the people who walk with Jesus and go, those are people whose hearts are prepared for forgiveness. And while the story of the church might have looked a little different over a course of different times, where certain groups of the church have been people, in other words, who are very comfortable with rebuking, but not really comfortable with forgiveness, Jesus says what marks the people who belong to Jesus, which proclaims the kingdom of God, is an unbelievable commitment, an unrelenting, scandalous commitment to forgiveness. Because it's just part of our duty. It's what we do. Verse 10 says this. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Apostles who belong to Jesus, who would follow him, who would be sent out, bearing witness of the kingdom of God, in other words, telling God's story would, be, would tell it as part of their natural duty. What they do responsibly as part of belonging to God is to be forgivers. That's the responsibility of what people who belong to Jesus are about. And Jesus says, that's why you can see the disciples kind of freaking out a little bit. That's why they ask for more faith. And in some ways when they ask for faith, they're actually, the way that sometimes interpreted is, you don't have enough faith. You guys got to step up. You guys are playing junior varsity disciple. It's time to go graduate to the varsity team. Step up to some real faith, but you guys don't even have that. I don't think that's actually what's being said. It could be interpreted that way. I've heard it spoken that way before. It's possible. I think what's actually being said here is you guys, if you were here last week too, you have what you already need. You have enough faith in this. Forgiveness is an incredibly difficult thing. We're going to have to overcome some obstacles to be people who are forgivers. And it, is a, and it requires faith. It will not just require effort. It will require God's power in you to do this. But you got it already. You got enough. But make it a faith thing. Don't make it an effort thing. Make it a faith thing. If we're going to be people who are serious about a fearless, scandalous generosity of forgiveness, we're going to have to come to grips with the idea that rewriting the story of human relationships, reclaiming the story of forgiveness in our community and among our own relationships and people and work and families and all that other stuff is a huge undertaking. And we're going to have to do some business with our own obstacles to forgiveness. Let me just give you a couple of them. Maybe you connect to some of these. Forgiveness is so incredibly difficult for us for a lot of reasons. One of them is this. When I, when I forgive someone else, the other person isn't necessarily fixed. I'm releasing my own bitterness and, and resentment from myself, but that other person isn't necessarily fixed. I don't get to know that they're all of a sudden rehabbed. But I get to release them. That's a little scary. Others of us, forgiveness is a sign of weakness. And in some way, we're brought down to the level of the person who wounded us. Not because we participate in the same thing that they do, but we somehow manage in some weird way to give them permission 
to do that stuff to us. So it feels like weakness. Others of us, we'd say, well, I'd forgive, but I want justice first. Most of the time, when people talk about justice, it's actually a veiled reference to vengeance. I want my turn. I want to take a shot at him too. Others of us, we withhold forgiveness because it's a form of protection. I get to hold, I get to power up with bitterness and anger and resentment. And it keeps me insulated from further wounding. Others of us, when we talk about forgiveness, it causes us to confront even our own part in the wounding relationship. That maybe there's a part of, of us that's responsible that we just don't want to see. In forgiving, they're, you know, they're going to have to, they're, we're, I'm going to have to deal with my own part in this and we don't want to do that. And maybe there's a part of us that doesn't want to forgive because not being a forgiver allows me to feel superior. You might have done that, but at least I'm not like you. I'm so much better than you, and I'll always have this over you. That's my issue. That's my obstacle. My deal with forgiveness is I never want to give the sense that I'm on the same level as the person who wounded me. I always want to feel as though I'm better than they are. That I live in a world of superiority, and I'm so sad for them that they live in some other place where they have to stoop to some level, but I'm so much better than them. We talk about forgiveness. It is incredibly painful. We could spend weeks and weeks on this. I know I didn't cover everything on it. But the question we ultimately get faced with as we're talking about forgiveness is, well, what's in it for me? I mean, I don't want to make it selfish, but we're actually asking the question, what's in it for me? Why should I do this? Is there really a benefit to me forgiving people who have wounded me, particularly the seven times where someone's apologizing and continuing to do it? What's in it for me? Forgiveness says the evil stops here. We're no longer going to continue on this crazy cycle any further of this tennis match of abuse back and forth to each other. Forgiveness says the evil stops with me. I'll absorb it. And we know that it comes at a tremendous cost. Every time we forgive, we actually die a little. It is that painful. And things don't have a tendency to diminish over time when there's bitterness or anger or resentment. They tend to escalate. Because all generosity comes at a cost. Forgiveness is an act of profound generosity. Jesus models this for us on the cross. That there is in fact a self-sacrificing giving of oneself to forgive. No better example than on the cross where Jesus says, I'll die to take on the sin and evil of the world that forgiveness might be available to everyone. Forgiveness comes at a great cost to us. It is an offering of our own life. When you came in, you got one of these in your bulletin. It says, my offering is. I'm going to take that out right now just for a second. When we talk about generosity, and if you've been to church before, you're probably familiar. The Mariners doesn't do it this way. People pass a basket asking you know, people to contribute their own offering, their tithe, their offering, whatever, in a basket. And what, I, what we're going to do today is we're actually going to pass a basket where you're going to place this in there, and you're going to write some stuff on it in a second. I'll tell you what that looks like. Because we believe that there's actually something incredibly scandalous among us that might come out here, which is that we would be incredibly 
committed to forgiveness. That people would actually have their attention arrested and pointed on people who are so committed to forgiveness to dealing with the obstacles that are in their way to forgiveness. Here's what I want you to do. Just for a second, I want you to pause. I want you to think about what is it that's in the way of you becoming this kind of fearlessly forgiving person. And I want you to write it on here. Now, some of you are going, I'm so glad I don't have a pen today. This is just so victory. Now, here's the deal. There are a ton of fearlessly generous people around you who will let you borrow their pen if you don't have one. But here's what I want you to write. I want you to write what you're giving up to God that you might become the person of forgiveness that he's called you to become. So are you giving up control? Are you giving up a a sense of pride? Are you giving up your right to comparison? Are you giving up your own superiority over other people? Are you giving up a sense, maybe even of shame? Are you sharing some kind of, what, what is it that is keeping you from being the forgiving person that God's called you to be? And this is the act right here, the beginning of that process. This is the act of mustard seed kind of faith. God, reveal to me where it is that I'm being blocked from being a forgiving kind of person that you've called me to be. So here's what I want you to do. You just write. Ethan will play a little bit. I'll give you a little space. I'm going to write. And then um, we're going to pray. And we're going to collect the offering. And that will be our offering today. So let's take a moment. Why don't you write down what it is that God's speaking to you about that ought to be surrendered to him. We hold these for just a second. If you're not finished writing, keep doing that. But hold on to this for a second. Let's pray for our offering today. Let's pray. Jesus, we give to you these things. You give us freedom to choose how we might live our life. Freedom to choose to hold on to, to live a life of scarcity. God, now we give to you our offering. Which says, will you take what you have the freedom you've given us that we might have used to prohibit, to inhibit forgiveness, God, and we give it to you on the expectation that you will do abundantly more with it than we could ever imagine. We give to you our offering and expectation, Jesus, that your own abundance would flow over us, that forgiveness would be the story 
that freedom would be our story that is written because we're not owned by these things which we now hold. We part with them with generosity and with gladness. We celebrate that you are an abundant God who gives to us everything we need beyond what we could possibly imagine and we surrender this to you. So God, would you take our offering? Would you receive it with gladness as we gladly give it to you? In your name, Jesus, amen.